welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. As we remain, I'm thankful that you're standing for the reading of God's Word. We are in Colossians. We come now to Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. Let us hear, gathered together as God's people, the Word of God. Paul writes to this church, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's holy word. May it speak afresh to our hearts and walks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, we're getting close to finalizing Colossians, and we come really to the end of the teaching portion of the book. And Paul has given us a lot of doctrine, a lot of great teaching about the greatness of Jesus And he's also given some corrective teaching to that church and to our church, to churches over time. And uh, then he shifted into the practical dimensions of what it's like to live out the Christ life. And that's where he's been involved now for the last chapter and into chapter four. A lot of practical advice about marriage, about the workplace and other things. He finally shifts here after teaching us about prayer. Now, prayer was the subject of the last message I brought you, the last section of the text, where he taught the church how to pray intentionally. Remember that? And the last part of praying intentionally was to teach them to pray for open doors for the gospel, to teach them to pray for what we would call today evangelistic conversations, opportunities to speak about the the gospel of Christ both as a church at large in major ways, but also individually. And so when he talked about praying for an open door, in verse 4 he says, pray also that when my open doors come, I may make the gospel clear, which is how I ought to speak. So now he shifts, and in verses 5 to 6, the final part of his practical teaching is how to act when the door gets opened. How to speak when you have an opportunity with one who doesn't know Christ. So when opportunity comes, you'll be ready. Now, I would say that in Paul's time, as in our time, one of the things you have to be prepared for, and I think is in his mind as he wrote these next two verses, is the fact that in a fallen world, gospel opportunity comes with spiritual opposition. We know that. In Paul's world, it was true. In our world, it's true. Let me just give you a a couple of examples. Uh, uh, A a theological uh, influencer in my life in in years past was uh, Dr. Earl Rodmacher of Western Seminary, and he wrote in his commentary on, uh, his comments rather, on this passage about the time in which the Colossians were living and what it was like to be a Christian and the opposition that there existed in society. He wrote this, early Christians were often viewed with suspicion, distrust, and disdain. They were considered atheists because they would not worship the gods of Rome and Greece. How does that make sense? 
Many labeled them in the society as unpatriotic because they would not burn incense before the image of the emperor, which was required of of Roman citizens once a year at City Hall, or expected, I should say that. Some people in the society accused the early Christians of participating in orgies because of their talk of love feasts, the misunderstanding of that idea of coming together to, to be together in celebration. Other people in the secular culture harbored suspicions that Christians were actually cannibals who ate and drank the blood and the body of the Lord. So you can see rumor and misrepresentation ran rampant in that society. These are all misunderstandings and falsehoods. They were the opposite of the truth. He said, with such misrepresentations of Christian belief and practice running rampant in their society, it was very important for misunderstandings to be dispelled by the virtuous and impeccable lives of Christian believers. In other words, the Colossians were living in a society spring-loaded to misunderstand the the Christian church, to have inbuilt hostility. And and, and Dr. Rodmacher is saying that this passage teaches that Christians need to meet opposition with example and words of grace to overturn these deceptions. So you might say, well, those are some pretty extreme opinions today. But, you know, there are a lot of misrepresentations and misunderstandings about the modern church in the United States, the evangelical church that we're part of. Uh, author Josh Howerton has explored this. And he wrote this, churches aren't programs or buildings, they're people, and people are messy. So churches are messy. He says, if you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians or spend more than 10 minutes in any church. I think that was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, Christians and therefore churches are imperfect, sometimes grievously so. But in addition to having flaws and sins, churches also have an enemy whose primary weapon is lies. And so Satan tries to deconstruct the church that Jesus is constructing by leveraging the church's faults to slander her with false narratives. And it happened to the Colossians, and it happens today. He said, today there's a wide and growing gap between cultural narratives, things that the society believes about Christianity and the reality of Christianity. Here are just three examples. Cultural narrative number one. Maybe this will resonate with what you've been reading out there, or maybe you've experienced it. The cultural narrative number one that's false would be Christians aren't really pro-life, they're just pro-birth. Some of you may have heard this before. Christians are sometimes accused of being pro-birth more than pro-life. People in the culture say they pretend to be passionate about the lives of the unborn as a political weapon, the argument goes, but they don't really care about children once they're born. But the data tells a different story. In addition to establishing almost every pregnancy resource center you've ever seen, right, to care for vulnerable women, as well as countless child sponsorship programs, the adoption rate among practicing Christians in our society is more than double that of the average U.S. household. So you see, the reality outruns the misrepresentation. Maybe you've heard that false narrative. The example of Christians in in reality speaks against that. Cultural narrative number two, he writes, Christianity is emotionally repressive and bad for your mental health. Now, we, we giggle a little bit, But no, that is really underlying a lot of what's going on in our culture, particularly our educational culture and and the culture in which millennials and those younger have have walked through. Any moral code 
is a restriction on you becoming you. So Christianity is emotionally repressive and bad for your mental health. And yet, again, to the contrary, the data shows that church attendance correlates with less depression, less suicide, less emotional pain medications like like smoking and substance abuse, greater social support, greater meaning in life, greater life satisfaction, greater civic engagement, and children more likely to grow up happy. Now, you you see, the, the reality tips over these narratives. In fact, Washington Times did a study, and it revealed that regular churchgoers were the only segment of the United States population whose mental health actually improved in pandemic rack 2020. I thought that was fascinating. False narratives disproved by example and reality. Here's the last one, cultural narrative number three. Christians don't really care about the poor. They only care about political power. Now, it's... There's, there's impressions that people have of Christians. In some, some Christ circles, Christians are cast as being anti-poor. Their, their truth claims, he writes, are just power plays, a voting block protecting its power and privilege at the expense of the powerless and the, under, the underprivileged. The reality, however, is that people who pray daily and regularly attend church outpace their, their non-religious neighbors in generosity to the poor, both in their time and their money. In other words, Christians far outrun the culture in terms of giving to the needs of the poor and creating ministries that help the poor. He says we could go on and on. The more a person attends church, the less likely that person is to commit a major crime. Children raised in church-going households are less likely to be depressed, use drugs, or engage in sexual activity outside marriage. Here's the point. There's a massive gap between the perception of Christianity in the world and on social media and the reality of who Christians are and what they do. Now, we don't need to be involved in the idea of minimizing our faults, and we have many, private and public. But we need to paint a clearer picture of the glorious beauty that God is doing amid the ruin of the church. We were all ruins when we came to Christ. We're in process as we walk with Christ. So I I was thinking about all that in in, in terms of this, this call of Paul to walk in wisdom toward a society that has spring-loaded to misunderstand us or misrepresent us. And I was struck with how important a message this is for us today. We've done some things that have created and earned false understandings that may have some grains of truth in them in our public interactions and other things. But Paul says, regardless of the missteps in your faith, God calls you to be a dependent, Christ-honoring example, someone who's growing in the love of God, both in your example and in your words, to a lost world. And that's what this message is about, about today. So, like then, so now, the culture can be deceived into believing certain falsehoods about Christianity. Paul says the answer, listen to this, is for Christians to portray and proclaim a compelling and truthful faith. Portray and proclaim by example and by how we work, the words we use with people. So I'm putting this message under the the title of How to Answer a Christ-Critical Culture. Think you guys understanding me where we're at? It is a Christian-critical culture. It, It has its misrepresentations. How do we answer those? Paul gives us five principles. Here we go. We'll start with the first. Number one, live a life of integrity before your non-Christian world. 
Live a life of integrity before your non-Christian world. First phrase of verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Let's take a look at this. Who are outsiders? Well, this is a term that Paul used to describe non-believers. They're outside the family of God. They're outside the family of faith. They've never understood the gospel of grace. In 1 Thessalonians, you can see this, uh, this laid out. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul uses the same language, verses 10 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4. Get the reference right? Yep, okay. For that, I'll go to verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught to, uh, by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. Here we go. And to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So that's the, the influence of your actual life, your deeds, who you really are in real time before the eyes of outsiders, those who have not had the opportunity to come into the family of faith. So he's talking about all the non-believers in your world. Private one-on-one relationships, those that walk how you walk, watch how you walk in your life. The word walk, as we go back to our text, and I think it's the same one in 1 Thessalonians 4, when he says walk in wisdom, peripateo was the Greek word, and it, it, it was a word that basically came from two words, which meant to walk around, and it came to represent your daily life in whatever sphere you were living your daily life in your home, the, 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 the daily life in your workplace, your eight to five kind of experience, how you walk out in the social culture, how you conduct yourself in, in, uh, in, in the, the culture of the time, whatever it would be, how you act at school, how you act at a parent-teacher's meeting, who you are in every single dimension has to be understood to be something that should be done in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. If you go back in our, in our very epistle, Colossians chapter 1, you can go back to verses 9 and 10, and he told him to do the same thing earlier in the epistle. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10. And he said, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And look, wisdom is connected not just to what you know intellectually, not just what you share in a Bible study, but look at the next verse. So as to walk, same word, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. And the good work is probably the way you're ministering, you serve others who are lost for all endurance and patience according to his glorious might. And so that's the call. So when he says walk with wisdom here, he's not just talking about wisdom to answer their arguments. He's talking about you taking a look at your life, knowing what the Bible says your life ought to reflect, knowing what you with your mouth say you believe, and making sure they're like this. Instead of, having a verbal game, but a life that's completely out of phase. And so this is the wisdom he's called us to understand. So you got to, we would call it today integrity. 
integrity. So live a life of integrity before your non-Christian world in every circle. Close family, extended family, working environment, professional environment, social environment, whatever it might be, environment in the public square, whatever it might be, live a life of integrity. May May your actions match your beliefs and declarations. Here's what one uh, commentator from the Expositor's uh, Bible commentary kind of summed it up. This text teaches us to demonstrate practical Christian wisdom in dealing with secular society. Paul's words imply that believers are to be cautious and tactful so as to avoid needlessly antagonizing or alienating their pagan neighbors. This is very important in this day of verbal engagement, confrontation, and social discourse. In a positive sense, they write, they also imply that believers should conduct themselves so that the way they live will attract, impress, and convict non-Christians and give the lost community a favorable impression of the gospel. We talked last week about what it means to adorn the doctrine of God. Paul said to do that in the workplace. Remember that text? To adorn something means to allow it to be as attractive as it can be, isn't it? So that people are drawn to it and gaze upon it. So let me give you a practical dimension to this. We, you and I need to live our lives before others in a way that attracts, not detracts from the gospel. We need to live our lives before others in a way that attracts and doesn't detract from the gospel. So important. You know, you've heard people talking about the scale of readiness and interest that that some have who are non-believers, and it varies. But there's an old quote uh, that uh, says there are a lot of people who are at the point in their lost lives where they'd still rather see a sermon than hear one. Maybe you've heard that. Paul's alluding to that here. As Lewis Johnson, a great Bible teacher, said, often the only version of the Bible the world reads is that of a believer's life. And if that's true, in the light of the weakness of some Christians and their testimony today, there's probably a lot of people out there asking, is there a different translation? (laughs) Because the one I'm reading in this guy's life, bitter taste. I'm convicted. So first principle, live In wisdom, walk in wisdom, every sphere of your life. Live a life of integrity before your non-Christian world. Let's go on quickly to the last four. The second, he teaches us to seize every opportunity that we have to portray and convey the gospel. That's the next phrase, making the best use of the time. What's this all about? Well, time there is not from the Greek word chronos, which just talks about time, second by minute, minute by minute, day by day as it passes. It's a different Greek word, and you probably are familiar with it, kairos, which meant a moment in time or a short season that before you know it, it's gone. In our English, we would probably use the word opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to act and to take advantage of a moment in time or a situation that may not be there forever. In fact, it's a fleeting moment. So he's saying there are fleeting moments in which you have an opportunity to walk in wisdom and to speak and be gracious about the gospel. Take advantage of everyone that comes to you. And, and, and when it says making the best use of, it's an interesting word. Exagorazo meant to buy something in the marketplace. 
And it, the, the, he's using a play on words here. He's basically saying, listen, uh, gospel opportunities, evangelistic conversations, they come and go, and they come and go often in a nanosecond. And you need to be looking for the moment, wherever you're acting, whatever conversation, whatever environment you have to be an example. And when you see the opportunity to live for Christ or speak for Christ, grab it up and buy it. It's a deal. You get my, my meaning? There are moments that, aren't there moments in your life where you realized you sat silently through a gospel opportunity? And you're driving home in your car thinking, nuts. It was a great opportunity for me to just share a little, little example from my life about the Lord with Larry. And I either chickened out or I just didn't even see it. Now I'm going back 15 minutes later realize there it was. So he says, train yourself to watch for these moments. Now you have to understand that Paul was writing this after his ministry had been, been dramatically curtailed. Where was Paul when he wrote Colossians? He was in prison. In Rome, his ministry was growing up to a, a high level, and then through a series of, of events and betrayals, he suddenly was thrown into the Roman prison system, and he was in, sitting in Rome now at the height of his effectiveness, not able to preach, not able to organize. And so Paul knew something about the fact that opportunities to spread the gospel can come and go like that. So maybe he was thinking about the fact that whenever opportunity exists, Grab it and speak. Even if you don't know what to say, Paul says it's almost more important how you say it. Take what knowledge you have. Take what example you have and offer it. So Paul knew that opportunities can go fast. So what's the practical takeaway for us on this? I would say we need to ask God for what I would call eternal moments and see what he'll do. In other words, as you live your life and you're engaged uh, in the world where those don't know Christ. Ask God every day, and maybe with every situation you're walking into, to give you an evangelistic opportunity. Ask God to open the doors. Don't sit there and pound on them yourself. You will be amazed. It's happened in my life many times. Many of you can verify that when you ask God to open a, a door of conversation, a door of opportunity with a person you're praying for, or as you go into a situation, he opens doors. And you're willing to walk in. He does a mighty work. I have a friend who's uh, known the Lord for many years, and, uh, and uh, he's just, he has a one-on-one -on -one ministry that's phenomenal former pastor from many years ago, now just works out in the everyday uh, blue-collar world, and, and he, uh, he uh, has a side hustle, he has his own business, and, and uh, it involves uh, just kind of buying and selling. And so he has opportunities all day long to meet new people. And he was telling me a week or two ago as we had lunch about the fact that he continues his habit of asking the Lord to open doors and open opportunities. And he, he knew he was going to go see a new potential customer and uh, just had a sense that God could do something. And so he asked the Lord to give him the words to see if there's a door he could push on and maybe start a conversation. And so he goes to this guy's place and they start talking over what he could buy and, and uh, they make a deal. And my friend said, I was led in that moment to say, you know, I really appreciate getting the business. You know, this is a side hustle of mine, and it just helps me with cash flow so that I can uh, make the co-pays on my wife's medical uh, plan and with some of her medical problems. It just came into his mind to say, which is 
big concern of his. And the guy says, really, what's, what's wrong with your wife? And he says, well, she has a, she has a late stage cancer and it's come into our life and, and it's been very difficult and she's under treatment and we don't know what the outcome's going to be. And the guy looked at him and said, that's terrible. And he says, well, we discovered years ago something called the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Jesus Christ has given us confidence about her. There was a moment of long silence. And then this guy who he had met 30 minutes ahead said, my wife and I just came to Jesus five months ago after 20 years in the drug culture. We've been clean for five months. And I'm looking for some kind of Christian man that could help me understand my Bible. So... This brother happens to be that Christian man. He meets some people across the city, just going verse by verse through the Bible, helping them understand. And he says, well, I think I can help you with that. So, seize every opportunity you have to portray and convey the gospel. People say, there's never any opportunities. Ask the one who's the Lord of opportunities. Amen? Here's the third. He goes on. Now he shifts from example... And awareness to speech. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now he gets to a a critical component, particularly in our age. He says, let it always be gracious. That means every conversation with a lost person needs to be a conversation where you are handling them with graciousness. Always. No exceptions. Not with people that are unusually antagonistic. They they don't qualify for a gracious treatment. Oh, yes, they do. People that just don't get it, they don't qualify after a while. Oh, yes, they do. People that come at you with their agenda and their hostility and their blindness, they'll never see it. I, I don't, you know, oh, yes, they do. Always. I looked at that. I was so convicted. Now, what is gracious conversation mean? Well, as I studied it, it simply means being gracious to them. Listen, for they are sinners. It simply means being gracious to them, for they are sinners. They are lost. They are in darkness. They have a deep need for the grace of the gospel. They're in darkness, my friend. One commentator put it this way. When Paul says, let your speech always be with grace, he means make gracious speech a habit. Whether you're being persecuted by a person, whether it's a stressful situation, whether you're before a worldly judge, whether you've been wronged, it means let your mouth speak what is spiritual, what is wholesome, what is fitting, what is kind, what is sensitive. What is purposeful, what is complimenting, what is gentle, what is truthful, what is loving, what is thoughtful. Not bitter words or abrasive words or vindictive words or sarcastic words or angry or cutting words, not boastful words. None of these things. Let it be gracious. Well put. And wasn't this the way our Lord walked 
in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus opened the Bible and the the, the gospel and the declaration of who he was to the people in his old hometown of Nazareth, the Bible says that after he spoke in verse 22 of Luke 4, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This was the manner of our Lord. It ought to be ours. Now, what's a practical walk away with from this one. If, if we're to always be, with, be gracious in our words, always, I'll put it this way, in an age when we disagree with so much that is going on, and I say we as Christians, as evangelicals, as Bible-believing people, in an age in which we disagree with so much that is going on in our secular society, and when we are opposed by our society for so much of what we believe, you see this potential conflict and tension. In an age when we disagree with so much that's going on and when we are disagreed with but for so much of what we believe, listen, we must seek to be gracious more than ever before. Oh, how important this is. We must seek to be gracious more than ever before. For it is a time of great conflict potentially, and it ought not to be. Peter wrote to a group of Christians who were beginning to taste the front edge of civil persecution. And he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3 about this. Listen to his words. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. There's the wisdom of a godly life before the world, no matter what it does. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Oh, that's so powerful having a good conscience, being able to walk away from any conversation with anyone who doesn't know Christ, who's walking in darkness, and be able to walk away from that conversation with a good conscience, knowing that you lived under the love of God and you spoke in the love of God. Yes, you spoke truth, but it was, it was rimmed by grace. He goes on, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. God will stand for his people and his truth. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What's the doing evil part? It's it's breaking the law of love in your interaction with a lost world. Or being caught in outright sin as a Christian. He says, oh, there's a difference. Always be gracious. In an age when we disagree with so much that's going on and when others disagree with us about so much that we believe, we must seek to be gracious more than ever. We have the spiritual power. We have the Christ-like example. We have the call of God. Always be gracious. Here's the next. At the same time, number four, Always be truthful. Go back to our text. Let your speech always be gracious. And then he says, seasoned 
with salt. What does that mean? I'll tell you, one thing it doesn't mean, in our society we have this phrase, well, take it with a grain of salt, or for some people, a ton of salt, whatever. And that means, well, there's probably not much truth in that. Don't, don't really go there. No, that's, that's not what this is talking about at all. In the ancient world, it was an expression. Well, salt was used in two ways, basically. One was to make something tastier when you put it on a, a dish, you know, right? The other was to purify it or to keep it from being corrupted. There's a lot of disagreement about this text means, but in my study, I came to conclude I think it means the second of the two. I think that it means be gracious with all who are lost and who challenge you, but also be truthful. In other words, the truth that the Christian does speak in a dark, corrupt culture can serve as salt to speak into sin and to speak into deception. We're the only ones who can. So therefore, as we are gracious, we are also always truthful. We're looking for the opportunity to speak about what God says about that situation or that value or that event or whatever it is, and we look for an opportunity to share his truth about it. Why? Because the lost heart needs to taste the conviction of sin before it realizes its sin and begins to seek its Savior. Isn't that true? This conversation about man's lostness and God's perfection and sin itself has to be had or salvation doesn't come. So he's saying, you be gracious, but but you should also speak the truth. You need to speak about sin when it's called for or simply the truth of God's word about a situation. You know, in my experience, can I share something from the New Testament about that? And, And you quote a verse. What do you think about that? Just want to just want to offer that for your thought. Gentle, gracious, humble, but we do need to speak about sin and we should speak about sin and offer a call to repentance. But here we need to do it with a broken heart, a heart that also needed to taste grace. So there's these two dynamics here in our conversations with a Christian critical world, a Christ-critical world. The one is, always be gracious, he says. Let graciousness never depart from you. Yet you also speak the truth in love. And when you do that, your conversation is full of the will of God. doesn't matter the outcome. You've done and you've been who God wants you to be. Now, there's an example of this that, that, that I would present to you, and, and it's the example of Jesus do you remember when the woman was taken in adultery and they brought her before Christ and, and the religious zealots of the time, the Pharisees were ready to falsely condemn her perhaps or hypocritically condemn her and stone her. You remember the story. At the end, Jesus exposes their sin. He was without sin among you. Let him cast the first stone. They all are convicted. By the way, that's an example of speaking truth, isn't it? And they depart and there's the woman left alone on her knees in the dust before him. And what did Jesus say? He said, neither do I. She said, he looked at her and said, woman, are there none left to condemn you? And she said, no one. And Jesus said this, neither do I condemn you. Grace, graciousness, love over a lost heart. Then he said, go and sin no more. Salt. Moral correction, the light of the way out of her sin to God. The two dimensions of a conversation with a lost heart. Oh, 
There's no condemnation when you come to Christ through the cross, my dear friend. But you must realize that sin is breaking your life. It's harming your family, whatever it is. Do you see the, the, the two domains? Always be gracious, but always be truthful. And so what's the practical walk away with this one? Well, I would say we are to speak truth, truth, but to do it with a heart of grace. How, how, do you, uh, how do you live in more graciousness toward people that oppose you or disagree with you or aggravate you or whatever? I, I, I come back in my own life to realize that, um, well, Jesus said, for out of the heart the mouth speaketh. And what happens in my life is the more I'm in touch with my own fallenness, my own failure, all that Jesus took to that cross for me, I go back and retaste grace, and it makes it a little easier for me to offer grace to blind and lost people who were just as blind and just as lost and just as vicious as I was. Maybe that can help you. Maybe that can help you. Well, here's the last how do you answer a Christ-critical culture, critical against Christianity? Live a life of integrity, seize every opportunity, always be gracious, but still speak the truth. And here's the last. Always be ready for every encounter and every person. It's pretty simple, last, verse, last phrase of the verse. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul is basically saying, this is the answer for every person. This is the formula if you're into that. But you also, he, he's implying here, need to be ready and ready for every encounter and every person. Answer each person. So you've got to be aware that every relationship that God has given you, personal, family, extended family, employment situation, workplace issues, uh, whatever it might be, where you are in that do domain of, of the, the conflicting kingdom, so to speak. God has placed you there, and every person in that environment is someone that you need to always be ready to speak to graciously and truthfully. And, and he says, just be ready. And I think the implication here is that God will be ready with you. See, God will give you the grace in the moment to respond to any lost person you've ever known or you ever will know. Now, you may feel that's an impossibility with some relationships in your life, but no, God will give you the grace in the moment to respond to any lost person you'll ever know because he says this is how you are able to answer each person. Somebody wrote a book a million years ago called You're a Regular Person. And they talked about there's certain persons or, or, or individuals in your world that are, they, you know, they zig and you zag and they jig and you jag or whatever. And, and it's just, that's just going to be the way it is. I don't see that. Scripture says grace and truth every life. So God will give you the grace in the moment to respond to any lost person you'll ever know. Here's, here's the thing, though. The bigger issue is how you look at every lost person you'll ever know. This is very important. Let me kind of put it into, into just kind of a, a flow of thought. I mean, he says here, this is how I want you to walk toward outsiders. Look at the beginning of the passage. Outsiders. Let's talk about that for a minute. 
Why does the Bible call them outsiders? It's talking about spiritually. They're in the same country as you are. They're the same citizen as you are. Same workplace as you are. Same economics as you. But they are outside. Outside of what? They're outside of the family of God. Listen right now. This is so important. Those of us who are born again by the mercy and the grace of God, we were made spiritual insiders. We were brought and adopted into the family of God. Amen. Hallelujah. And did you have the main work in that? Did you pull that off? I'll tell you right now, I know you all and none of you did. And I lead the way in the none. We're in the family of God by the grace of God, by the mercy of God. So they're outside, but listen, beloved, we should want them to come in. All this is becoming lost today in a polarized culture. The world can attack. Christians shouldn't. The world is lost. The world has its own will at stake and sees nothing but the will of man. And there is an edge to it. Christians should not respond in that way. You must be gracious. I must be gracious with a broken heart over lost people. And we must speak the truth that if we hadn't received it in God's grace, we would be in the same position they are. They are outside, but we should want them to come in. They are not the enemy. They are the lost. They are not the enemy. They are the lost. As Christians, we, we should never have a sanctified superiority complex. We have a responsibility to witness to the lost around us and to seek to bring them into God's family. And I find the greatest battle among us to be critical and caustic toward the lost and toward all that's going on in our world the greatest battle that, uh, among some believers who have a battle over attitude and reaction are those that know the most theology and know that those that know the most of their Bible and those that have walked in the privilege with Christ the most, the longest time because we are so convinced of what we know to be truth that we demand that they see it without regeneration, that we demand that they obey it without spiritual life. And there's a dimension in which all of this needs to be brought humbly to the cross, and I bring it in my own life. Wise words from believers will prevent outsiders from slandering the church. It can't help that, and it will help to advance the kingdom of Christ. Oh, what's the practical as I close? Join me in asking God, to search your heart for how you really view the lost people and culture around you. And let him change what he will to the way of Christ. Our culture is becoming more Christian critical by the day. But the answer to that is not to respond in kind. The answer to someone who is Christian critical is to give them a Christian encounter with the Christ in you and the truth of Scripture. Live in integrity. Speak graciously. Do speak the truth with the hope that they may come in. You know, so much of this has to do with our own hearts. 
If you've tasted grace, you'll offer grace. And communion is a God-given way to retaste grace. And I pray that in our communion as we close our service, you will take yourself back to when you were called to Christ. Take yourself back to the grace you tasted and ask Him to bear it to others through you.